Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. This is The Courage to Hope, and this is Tony LaGreca. Tonight I have a very, very special guest, Rick Moncastle, who is um, who actually spent years going after the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma, and he's going to tell us his story. Welcome, Rick. Hey, thank you, Tony. It's uh, good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, because I'm a lawyer, I've got some legal fine print that I need to say here at the beginning. So if, uh, if you all will bear with me, I just wanted to make it clear that my uh, statement and any statements and comments I make during this interview are my personal views and opinions and are in no way related uh, to my current position with the Virginia Attorney General's office. So that's the legal stuff that's out of the way and let's rock and roll. Okay, well, thank you. So um, tell me how you originally got started in this this case with the Purdue. <clears throat> with Purdue, you started. Am I correct? Around two thousand and one, two thousand and two. Yeah, Tony. Actually, it would have been about two thousand and one. <clears throat> and at the time, um, I was with the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Western District of Virginia. Uh, that's basically the federal prosecution office that handles the uh, two, western two-thirds of the state of Virginia. And I've been there about uh, six years, from, uh, starting in 1995. And when I got there, it was uh, clear that there was a long history in that region um, of uh, involving um, illegal narcotics that were related to prescription drugs, unlike in maybe some of the urban areas, um, you know, maybe even Boston, where the drugs were more street drugs like cocaine and heroin and marijuana and that kind of thing. In the rural part of Virginia, the problem for many, many years had been prescription pills. And in the late 1990s, around 1997, 98, 99, our little office there, which was a satellite office, so there were only three lawyers and about three support staff uh, for that whole section of the state. Um, we had decided that we would go after doctors for overprescribing um, prescription pills, prescription narcotics. And, uh, you know, looking at not, no, we wanted to do something more than just. Uh, deal with people on the street and people that were addicted to the drugs that were using them on the streets. We wanted to go after what we viewed at the time was the source. So we prosecuted a number of doctors for over-prescribing over um, narcotic uh, um, prescription drugs. And we saw a trend at, in the late 90s where the drugs were moving away from sort of the Percocets and the Dilaudids and those sort of... Uh, single dose pills, they were beginning to pro uh, prescribe OxyContin in overwhelming amounts. And OxyContin, as uh, probably many of your listeners know, is a drug that packs a huge punch. It has 
uh, anywhere from 10 milligrams uh, at one point up to 160 milligrams of oxycodone in one pill. And that was that that kind of raised our eyebrows. <clears throat> the second thing that we learned in the late 1990s going into 2000, 2001 was in talking to our local law enforcement uh, officers, they were describing a huge increase in property crimes and thefts and burglaries and robberies that were related to uh, people who were seeking money to buy Oxycontin tablets on the street. And so Oxycontin, you know, what, what that told us was Oxycontin was a huge driver of crime in our community. And then the third thing that we saw going into 2000 and 2001 were complaints, uh, sort of anecdotal, I'll say, complaints from local pharmacists in small towns uh, who would, they would know who they were filling prescriptions for because it's these were small communities. And, you know, they sometimes would question whether a particular individual really needed a prescription for a narcotic pain pill, for OxyContin, if you will. And they were complaining that the Purdue sales reps uh, were being very aggressive towards them in terms of uh, telling them that they needed to fill those prescriptions. So those three factors were known to myself and Randy Ramsire, my uh, partner, who's also depicted in the Hulu miniseries. And I, I remember one day after work, it was, you know, probably after five o'clock, we were just sitting around the office talking about things. And we started talking about the prescription drug problem, in particular OxyContin. And we looked at those three factors. And basically, we said, you know, we maybe we need to uh, open up an investigation into Purdue to find out what's going on here. A and we, you know, at the time I felt that this was something that was having a huge impact on our community. And I felt like we had an obligation to at least look into it and maybe we wouldn't find anything. And, and that's all well and good. And, you know, we could, we, but at least we could say that we looked into it. We looked into this issue that was having a, you know, devastating impact on our community. So that's sort of how it all kind of got started. And so in 2001, um, we uh, asked permission to open a, a, a case. And that's when we, you know, we submitted the paperwork to open the case. Uh, it was right during the transition period from uh, one U.S. attorney to the next U.S. attorney after the 2000 uh, election. Yeah, I was going to say the um, U.S. attorney gets... gets um Gets gets there because of the president uh, picks them. Is that how yes, the U.S. 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 There are, there are uh, ninety four U.S. attorneys in the United States and the territories. There's there's even U.S. attorneys in Puerto Rico and Virgin Islands. But ninety four U.S. attorneys. They're all appointed by the president of the United States. And so every time there's an election, then the guys that the the U.S. attorneys that were with the president who's leaving. They leave for the most part, and the new president comes in and gets to appoint the new, the next uh, group of ninety-four U.S. attorneys. Yeah, that that's to me doesn't make any sense. If somebody's doing a good job, why do you take them out? But that's for another discussion, I guess. So, when you were in your travels, uh, when you first started the investigation, did you talk to Dr. Art Van Zee? Yes, uh, I, I did. Um, 
so yeah, at the, and that was I think that was fairly early on because I didn't know much about OxyContin other than it was a, a drug. It was a bunch of oxycodone in a pill form that was being sold on the street at a dollar a milligram, and that there was a lot of it out there, and that people were committing crimes to get it. Uh, so, uh, I had heard that Dr. Van Z had um, had expressed some concerns, had had raised an alarm about OxyContin, and I, and I recall, I think, uh, <clears throat> as I recall, the investigator and uh, healthcare fraud investigator in our office, Greg Wood, and I, we actually drove out to Dr. Van Z's clinic out in a rural part of Virginia, out in Lee County. The, the county that is, you know, Virginia's got like a triangle and Lee County is at that very far western tip uh, bordering upon Kentucky and, and it's the poorest county in Virginia. I was going to say, is that considered Appalachia, Smoky Mountains area? It's, yeah, it's Appalachia. It, it's it's yeah. uh, the Appalachian region. It's coal mining country. Um, it's, it's very hilly, very mountainous uh, and very poor. And so, so I remember riding out to see Dr. Van Z to, to talk to him. And, and one of the things I recall, and, you know, I recall these bits and pieces because it's been 15 years and, yeah. and I, I've recalled more recently because um, I've started talking about this case for uh, a lot more than I had ever anticipated. But I remember him telling me, telling us that whereas before, you know, because he was treating um, he was treating substance abuse, uh, both alcohol and drugs at one point in time. He was telling me that before OxyContin, you know, a, a large number of his patients uh, that he was treating were uh, he was treating for alcohol uh, abuse. And now with OxyContin, he was almost treating uh, almost nearly every single one of his patients was being he was treating for uh, OxyContin abuse, and that he he viewed the drug as being very dangerous, that it was very addictive, and that it really should not be prescribed as wi widely as it was being prescribed. And so that was my kind of introduction to OxyContin. Did, did any of the doctors that you interviewed um, say to you that the sales reps were coming by and offering contests or or anything like that to push more pills. Um, well, so what we what we learned in the as the, you know throughout the investigation was that there were a number of incentives. Well, first of all, here's what we sort of to put it all in context. Purdue launched OxyContin in 1995 after getting approval from the FDA and after getting approval from the FDA for this package insert, which I'm sure we're going to talk about because of the bizarre language in that package insert. And they targeted uh, certain parts of the United States for their launch. And what they targeted were those places where there were a large number of physicians who were already prescribing uh, prescription narcotics, who were prescribing the Lortabs and the Percocets and the Dilaudids. Uh, they targeted those doctors, particularly in areas like uh, southwestern Virginia, southeastern Kentucky, uh, rural Maine, where there was a uh, historically 
you had a lot of people working it, uh, very hard physical manual labor and getting injured, for example, in the coal mines or in the lumber industry, and that uh, they were being, you know, it was, it was normal to prescribe um, narcotic uh, prescription drugs for pain that came from those physical injuries. Um, so that was part of the strategy was to target those uh, physicians who were already prescribing pain pills. That was, I think they viewed that as low hanging fruit. Uh, one of the uh, things that they would do would be to incentivize those the, physi the physicians that they were targeting by asking them to be on these quote speakers programs, close quote. And you know, a, a vast majority of the pharmaceutical uh, companies do that. Uh, they 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 call it a speakers program, and they will ask the doctor to come to some nice resort, bring your spouse or your significant other to, you know, um, Orlando in Florida, come to this meeting, get up and give a talk for 30, 45 minutes, maybe an hour. And not only will we pay all of your expenses to this nice resort, but we'll also give you an honorarium, you know, sort of a, a fee, $1,000, whatever, $500, whatever it is. And so they would do that uh, as a means to encourage the doctors to prescribe their product because the ones that were asked back to, for us to do that again were the ones that were increasing their prescriptions. So that was one of the incentives that was out there. But um, Tony, I think the main incentive for those doctors who were already prescribing, uh, you know, narcotic uh, prescription drugs for pain as a result of injuries and physical labor was to those those doctors because uh, our office had prosecuted a number of them for over prescribing basically for prescribing without legitimate medical purpose purdue came in and told those doctors that hey switch them to oxycontin and you won't have to worry about drug seekers right people coming just to get drugs not necessarily having a legitimate injury uh, you won't have to worry about drug seekers because OxyContin is not addictive and OxyContin uh, won't be abused because it has this delayed release delivery system that uh, means that the addicts won't like it. So, that, so they incentivize them by selling them those lies as a way to make them feel better about prescribing uh, narcotic control substances uh, opioids, um, where there was, a, you know, they had a concern that if they were prescribing and they were found to be, be without legitimate medical purpose, if they succumbed to a drug seeker, they could face prosecution or sanctioned by the medical board. Purdue was also selling to that concern by lying and saying that OxyContin, you know, was not addictive and couldn't be abused. Yeah, well, we, well, obviously we know that, but, uh, <laughs> and, that, we know that's a lie, right? Oh yeah, yeah. They, they use the um, they use the New England Journal of Medicine review by a Dr. Jick saying that less than one percent of the ten thousand people he interviewed, uh, you know, got addicted. Well, that was like in three days' time or something, though, right? Yeah. So Tony, the um, 
the thing about the study that involved the so-called study involving Dr. Jick is that it was not a study at all. Um, it was a letter that Dr. Jick wrote to the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. It was all of about five lines. And all that Dr. Jick was intending to do was to report his observations for patients that were hospitalized and that were given um, opioids for pain during hospitalization. I don't think it involved even 10,000 patients. Uh, I think that it was significantly less than that. Uh, I can't remember after all these years the exact number, but my, my sense it was only uh, at the most uh, maybe a couple of hundred, maybe it was more. But um, regardless of the number, Dr. Jick himself has said that he was very surprised that anyone would use that data uh, as a, a, a basis for making any kind of representations about opioid addiction. Uh, all he was doing was reporting data. Uh, it was not a study, so it did not have all of the controls that a clinical study or a clinical trial would have. Uh, all he did was look at data that related to individuals who were hospitalized, not outpatient folks, individuals in a who were hospitalized, therefore they're in a controlled setting, who were given opioids to control pain. And of course, we all know that if you're in a hospital, uh, you're basically only you only have access to those um, opioids that the hospital staff gives you. So you don't have the ability to go and get more and get addicted and abuse them. It's not so like that, you're going out at the lunchroom and, and trying to buy some from the local nurse or something. So, right. Yeah. So all Dr. Jick was saying was that in this particular instance, he observed a certain number of patients who were prescribed opioids and given opioids in a controlled hospital setting. And that you know, under those circumstances, a very few, less than 1%, became addicted, which sounds reasonable, but has certainly has no application to patients who are being prescribed a powerful drug like OxyContin in an outpatient setting uh, and, and without the controls of a hospital. So for anyone, number one, to try to say that was a study, that's a bald-faced lie because it was not a study, to say that that study had any, that letter, that data had any application to patients in an outpatient setting, that's a bald-faced lie. So from, you know, that very, the very reference to the JIC, I think they call it the Porter JIC, quote, study, close quote, is in and of itself just a bald-faced lie. So that was, and, one, and, of, and, that was one of the obvious things you had to to go on and so forth. So um, I'm sure you figured out right away that this was totally out of control. I mean, I've always seen pictures of people in lines outside of pill mills in West Virginia or someplace, and I don't know how accurate that is, but it sounds to me like they were just filling prescriptions all day. And uh, is that any truth to that? Oh, yeah. I think uh, 
you know, I, I've heard many reports, uh, you know, of, of parking lots full of people waiting for the doctor's office to open. Uh, I've seen many cases, actually prosecuted cases where uh, the patients would come into the office and just be handed a prescription. There'd not really be an examination. There'd not really be any kind of uh, uh, an encounter with a medical professional. Uh, that that was that's very that was very common, uh, particularly in the days of OxyContin. So as you're moving along, and we mentioned you mentioned about the um, the packaging inside, the, what comes with the prescription. So around 1999, the FDA and Purdue got together, and I understand they changed the wording because by now they were trying to say that the pain was the fifth vital sign that the doctors were underperforming on. How much investigation did you do on regarding the, the, the changing of the, of the wording in the prescription package? Well, I, I, make sure I, I, I'm uh, understanding what you're we're referring to the same thing. I, I think if we're talking about the same thing, then the changing of the wording at the time they did it, whether in 1999, 2000, whatever the timing was of that, I would classify as one of those um, closing the barn door after the horse is already out moments because you've already got Oxycontin on the streets. You've already got, you know, literally thousands, tens of thousands addicted to Oxycontin by lying about it. Uh, The package insert had language that was originally approved and used in marketing that said, Delayed absorption, as provided by OxyContin tablets, is believed to reduce the abuse liability of a drug. That's complete nonsense. Yeah. It, it's it, If you think about it, it's meaningless. It's believed by who? We're, there's no clinical study to back that up. It's obvious. But that language was in a the package insert that was approved by the FDA, particularly by a fellow named Curtis Wright, in 1995 and yes obviously our investigation would have spent a lot of time looking at how in the world did purdue get the fda particularly this fellow curtis wright to agree to this language which was scientifically scientifically nonsense but quite useful in marketing the drug to doctors as being less addicted, addictive and less abusable. Because the pitch would, was, hey, doc, Oxycontin, it, it, people don't get addicted to it. The Porter Jick study, quote, close quote, says less than 1% get addicted if used as prescribed, number one. And number two, it's uh, addicts don't like it because they can't abuse it. And the FDA has signed on to that. Look at this language because of our delayed absorption mechanism. Even the FDA believes it reduces the abuse liability of our drug. So you are free to prescribe it indiscriminately without worrying about getting people addicted and without worrying about drug seekers. Uh, coming in and trying to dupe you into giving them a prescription that they don't need. That, that was the huge 
the huge uh, danger that that you know that that language in the package insert should have come with a skull and crossbones. That's just my opinion, oh, yeah. uh, because of its utility <clears throat> in marketing that drug as less abusable. Because they could say, "This is from the FDA," because the FDA approved the package insert. So Curtis Wright, the FDA medical officer who approved OxyContin and who approved the language in the package insert, of course, as is accurately depicted in the Hulu series, uh, not too long after the approval and the launch of OxyContin, he went to, he left the FDA. Now he took a stop for about maybe 12 to 18 months at another low level drug company, but he ultimately went to work for Purdue uh, at you know, what, four or five times the salary he got at FDA. My personal opinion is that there was some kind of a deal cut between Curtis Wright and Purdue over the approval and, and uh, of the drug of OxyContin and the, the wording in the package insert. Uh, I could never prove it in terms of some sort of a criminal bribery or corruption um, prosecution. And the fact that Curtis Wright went to work for a company that he had regulated, that's not a crime in and of itself, which, you know, one has to wonder uh, how can the FDA operate independently if the people who are reviewing the uh, activities of a drug company can sort of cozy up to them in hopes of getting employment in the future. But that's the way the system is set up. There's nothing illegal about that. Uh, but but yeah, we spent a, I spent a lot of time looking at that issue, and you know, not finding the evidence that that that, wrote, that rose to a level of a crime. Yeah, speaking of evidence, in the TV show in the in the Dope Sick series, at some point you come across, or somehow you're getting you're getting uh, evidence, you're getting information and boxes and it looks like they come in truckloads and from what i can see in the in the weekly it shows you with all these cotton rows and rows and rows of boxes of paper paperwork where, where did that come from and how did you manage to get that and was that accurate there was that much it was accurate that there was that much the, i actually i think the in the weekly there might even be a photo that i had because uh, i I had at, after the case was over, before we cleaned up every cleared out everything, I had one of the uh, guys working on the case take some pictures because I could, you know, but yeah, there were thousands of boxes. Uh, we had them thousands in a, of boxes, which every box contained hundreds of files and folders. And, and just yeah, you said there was only three of you there at that office. I mean, how many hours did it take to go through that stuff? Yes, that took a lot of hours. So let me just clarify who, you know, there were, Randy and I were the two attorneys from our office because the third person had to be, you know, there's lots of other cases coming in and, and Randy and I, you know, we, all three of us had cases. Um, I had to cobble together an investigative team. And so we had two agents from the Virginia Attorney General's office's Medicaid Fraud Control Unit. I uh, had an agent from uh, Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General. Uh, I had Defense Criminal Investigative Services. I had uh, a couple of FDA agents 
some of these guys were coming from Washington, like the FDA, so they weren't there full time. You know, the HHS guy was coming from Roanoke down to Abingdon, uh, two hours away. Um, I had, you know, a Department of Labor was involved, uh, Virginia State Police and West Virginia State Police. So I had uh, several, I'm going to say, uh, if I could get everybody in the same room, and I had IRS. So if I could get everybody in the same room at the same time, which was rare, you might be, I might say the team was probably 10 or 12 people. Uh, the, the reality was uh, everybody was part-time except for the two uh, Virginia Attorney General's Office Medicaid Fraud Control Unit investigators. So, so you know, you take 12, I had probably five people part-time or 10 people part-time, so that's five. So equivalent of seven um, investigators, myself as an attorney, and I started working full-time on the case in 2005 or 2006 through 2007, and Randy was part-time. So that was our crew, and I, I will tell you that I believe it would not be a, a wild estimate to say that the lawyers for Purdue and the individuals uh, probably numbered in the you know fifty to one hundred range. Yeah, they they weren't short on spending money. So those records uh, came to us. I think that part of your question is where did the records come from. Through a variety, from a variety of means, in an investigation like that, uh, there would be subpoenas that would be issued. And I have to speak hypothetically about this uh, because of certain rules governing um, uh, the work that I did for the U.S. Attorney's Office. So I'm going to speak in a normal case like this, we would issue subpoenas to even including the target company, we would issue subpoenas and we would get records. And if you're issuing a subpoena to a, a large multinational pharmaceutical company, you're talking about getting lots of records. Uh, we would also issue subpoenas to anybody else that maybe did business with the company, uh, that uh, provided services to the company, that maybe they contracted out training, anybody else that might have some records that might be of use to us, we would have subpoenaed. Uh, it would not be unusual in a case like this to issue dozens of subpoenas, maybe even, you know, subpoenas numbering uh, more than 100 to 200. Uh, so that's sort of the, we obtain the records in the normal process uh, that would follow in an investigation like this. Would Purdue have had the same rep to cover your territory? So all the doctors that you were interviewing, was it the same Purdue rep that would be calling on them? Um, you know, Purdue had their, the number of reps they had varied over time because, you know, so, so here's the secret. I don't know if it's a secret or not, but people need to know about pharmaceutical companies. Their biggest expense is marketing. Okay. The, the pill that you take, and I don't care how much they charge you for it. it they could charge you, you know, for the new pills, they charge you a lot of money. That pill is pennies. Okay, it costs them pennies to make that pill. Yeah. And the biggest expense that you're paying for when you go pick up, pay for your prescription is marketing and maybe to a lesser degree, maybe research, but the huge amount is marketing. And as was depicted in the Hulu miniseries, Purdue 
the, the Richard Sackler, who was the president at the time, his strategy was, you know, he knew that marketing basically drove sales. So let's beef up the staff. Let's get a let's 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 triple our sales staff. Let's get them out there. Let's get them calling on doctors. Let's get them selling doctors about how uh, this oxycontin, even though it might contain forty milligrams of oxycodone, which is eight times more powerful than Percocet, is less addictive and less abusable. Okay, and so. Um, you know, you would have in, in our region, I would I, I can't remember exactly, but you would what you would normally have because the distance, in, you know, we don't have a lot of population, but we've got a lot of territory. So you would have a sales rep probably covering the Roanoke area, uh, Abingdon, which is two hours southwest in that area. You probably have a sales rep that was covering both the Virginia side of Bristol uh, Virginia and the Tennessee side of Bristol, Johnson City, and Kingsport, uh, Tennessee. You'd have you'd have multiple reps in a region like this, um, and there'd be other reps all up and down the the uh, I eighty one corridor. So there probably would have been half at any given time a half a dozen reps covering the area that we cover in in Virginia. So just <clears throat> to get a bigger picture. How many years were you and Randy working on the case? You started and and you, I know you ended around 2007, but how many actual years were you actually out working up this this claim? So, so I can tell you from from my perspective, um, we would have been there would have been a startup, uh, a learning curve that you know we opened the case in 2001. We lots of learning curve going on of trying to put together a team, trying to learn the rules of the road for FDA, trying to figure out who we should be talking to in FDA, uh, doing a lot of reading, trying to figure out the law, because this was all new stuff to us. Uh, we probably started ha dealing with documents into 2002 through 2004. So that's now three, three years, basically, of of the investigation. And then I know that in the winter and in 2005, we were probably doing documents and maybe we had begun interviewing witnesses. Uh, in the winter of, in January of 2006, I moved out of the U S attorney's office, which was, you know, was in a strip mall and closer to the courthouse in Abingdon and moved into where those boxes were located, where the investigative team was. And I was there full time, from January 2005 through um, July of 2007, basically. So I'm now, sorry, January 2000. Let me let me back up. January 2006 to July of 2007. So it, it's probably a good four and a half, five years. Okay, so when the case, the way I understand it, the three executives that you were going after. Um, one, how come? How can, you know, were the only way you could go after them is because they did a false congressional testimony? Not, no, that's not, not exactly, uh, not, not exactly like that. So, you know, and, and this is sort of my theory on these cases, those guys were in charge of the operations of the company. They would have been at the top when Purdue 
came up with its plan to tell lies about the addictive qualities and the abuse quality of Oxycontin, they would have made, you know, presumably have been in the decision-making loop. They would have um, been in there when Purdue, uh, the the Purdue sales reps were trained to tell their lies. So they would have been in that chain of command at the top. Now, what the false statements to Congress do, uh, because every criminal felony charge, you have to prove uh, intent of some kind. You have to prove that there was a criminal intent. And of course, you can't get into somebody's mind. That's all about what, what are they thinking and what's in their mind. The only way you prove criminal intent, you got two ways to prove it. It's what they did and what they said. And so, uh, in my view, if somebody tells a lie about what they knew or what they did, that's proof of a criminal intent. If you lie about something, that means you intend you intended to do that crime. I agree. So my view is that my view is and was that when they went to Congress and said, um, we didn't know anything about people uh, abusing our drug until 2001, when the U.S. attorney in Maine brought it to our attention. And I've got evidence that shows, oh, wait a minute, you were getting reports both news reports and reports from your sales reps in 1997, 98, 99, telling you that people were, uh, there was complaints about abuse, that people were abusing the drug, that law enforcement was complaining about OxyContin abuse driving crime, that uh, you were getting reports from sales reps about how people were lining up at doctor's offices and it looked like it was a big block party because they were there to get prescriptions and getting high in the parking lot and all that. You knew you got reports on all that because you're, you're interested in the PR on your drug. That, that was your, your, your main source of income in 1997, 98, 99, 2000. And now you're going to go tell Congress that you didn't know until 2001. Okay. That's that to me, that was a blatant lie. Okay. So you've got him lying to Congress, which that's a, that would be normally a felony, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Lying to any government agency or lying and not even to the government agency lying. It's a felony, a federal felony to lie in, any matter that is under the jurisdiction of a federal agency. So, you know, if they went out and lied to a doctor and it was a matter that, and, and and we could prove that that was, they were lying about something that was being regulated by a government agency, that would be a federal crime. That would be uh, making a false statement uh, under federal law. So you had those three guys, but how come, Richard Sackler being the president and CEO of the board of directors and who kind of instigated everything. How come he was not charged with anything? So one of our, our main objective as we were going through and investigating this case for four and a half years was to hold responsible 
the highest level corporate individual who was responsible for the, the, those corporate crimes that the evidence uh, dictated. And of course, our standard in a criminal case is beyond a reasonable doubt. So, you know, one of the things that you have in a corporate structure is you've got these tiers. Uh, so you have to go through all the tiers to prove that, you know, where the culpability lies. So we got to the level of the CEO, um, Michael Friedman, the general counsel, Howard Udell, and the medical director, Paul Goldenheim. The next level above them is, was, of course, Richard Sackler as the president of the company during the 1995 to 2001 time period. So he's insulated by those three guys that are below him. Um, and normally in those kinds of uh, um, situations where you're prosecuting individuals who are part of an organization, you have to get some, some, someone from each level to roll up on the next level in order to get enough evidence to meet the beyond a reasonable doubt standard. So they didn't roll up because they didn't have to because they were only going to plead guilty to a misdemeanor, right? Right. As I told, um, you know, and I gave a two-minute, um, uh, I guess, summary that was used in the introduction uh, to the House Committee on Oversight regarding the Sackler Act. As I told them, um, we reasonably believed that if we would, had been allowed to prosecute those three executives, Friedman, Udell, and Goldenheim, for felonies, that one or more of them, if they were faced with seri a serious felony conviction and jail time, one or more of them would, you know, re we could reasonably believe would roll up to the next level which would be the Richard Sackler level. We were denied the ability to use that leverage because the Department of Justice's political appointees, in my opinion, made a political decision not to allow us to prosecute those individuals for felonies. Now, that's my opinion. And that, that therefore, prevented us from going up to the next level. Yeah, what I didn't like is they were able to talk to the to the National Attorney General, the, the, the DOJ people, without you being there to be part of the discussion. It looked like a one-way discussion going on. And, and that's, you know, that's the other part of the, the systemic problem, because I mentioned earlier the systemic issue with FDA and its ability to get cozied up to by the people it regulates. This is a second systemic problem that has existed probably since the beginning of, uh, uh, of, of the Republic, is that, um, you know, you, if you political appointees um, who are the ultimate decision makers for our agencies, they are allowed to be lobbied to by attorneys, in our case, and for the Department of Justice, attorneys who are re representing the, the very wealthy. 
that's part of the system. I mean, when I started the case, because I've spent um, almost eight and a half years in Washington at Maine Justice. So I knew at, at the very beginning that this was a case that was going to be subject to political pressure, that there was going to be a phone call made by uh, a high-powered attorney who had been paid lots of money by you know, the, Purdue or somebody affiliated with Purdue, they were going to be able to pick up the phone and call somebody like Deputy Attorney General McNulty. And, you know, hey, let's go have lunch. Let's, let me tell you what these rogue prosecutors in uh, Western Virginia are doing. Uh, you know, I anticipated that. And I anticipated that if, I, if our investigation left any wiggle room in terms of the evidence, that uh, uh, that would give the political appointees the ability to dismiss our case and, and basically kill it. So I, I knew from day one that it was very important that we do a very thorough and airtight investigation uh, because I, I, I figured this is, that was going to happen. And you worked under John Bronley, is that correct? John Brownlee was the U.S. attorney, yes. He was the U.S. attorney, so... He seemed to be on your side all the way to a, yes. to a point. And uh, is it? Yeah, my, yes. Is it accurate that they originally offered you $10 million? They offered us a low number. I, you know, now 15 years later, I can't remember it, but it probably, I wouldn't have been surprised if it was $10 million. And I think we countered with $5 billion and, you know, we, count, we would have countered with a, a, a huge number. Um. But yeah, but John Brownlee was the as my boss, even though he was a political appointee, it was my job to get him the facts and get him comfortable with our position in our case, because he was the guy that needed to carry the water up to DOJ and to deal with the decision makers at DOJ. And in this particular case, it was his immediate supervisor, uh, the Deputy Attorney General McNulty. And so um, you know, John, to his credit, despite him, you know, him having political ambitions, uh, I was pleasantly surprised about how strong and forceful he was with carrying that water in our position up to Department of Justice. Yeah, and I understand that <clears throat> even after the deal was set, somebody called him that day and said, look, slow it down. We want to re rethink this or something. Yeah. So, and, and, and what I got from it, so I, I would be, I would have been getting secondhand information because the call would have gone to John uh, and, and anything I got, what he would have been relaying to us. But my understanding is that we were pushing to get the case um, moving and the attorneys for Purdue and the individuals wanted to slow roll it. Okay. And so we came to sort of this loggerheads where we had come up with a deal that we, th we thought we could live with and a deal that we thought we could get approved by the Department of Justice because we weren't sure they were going to let us do anything with the individuals. But we told them it, it needs to be done right now. Otherwise, we're ready to pull the trigger and start, uh, you know, start this case uh, in court. Uh, they didn't want to do that. They were complaining about having to make a quick decision. So my understanding was that John Brownlee got a phone call from an aide to 
Deputy Attorney General McNulty, who asked him to slow down, extend the deadline, and, and Brownlee basically told him to pound sand. Yeah, he seemed like he was he was pretty adamant. Well, he's seen the kind of work that you did and Randy did to get to where you guys were at that time, you know. So, um, <clears throat> before we run out of time, I wanted to ask you about the memo, because that's what the name of the weekly show is. It's called The Memo. And, of course, James P. Jones, the judge, he never, he never got to see the memo, did he? And he wouldn't, okay? He wouldn't, under any circumstances, get to see the memo. What he might have been interested in would have been the evidence that we had in you know described in a memo the memo is an internal document it's a prosecution memorandum it describes the investigation you know it's 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 a typical memorandum that is written uh seeking approval for any kind of case that uh, you know we want to get approval to get be prosecuted so it would have been uh, set forth the law and the facts just like all the memos and with a recommendation um because you know and so that memo because it is an internal communication it's a, it's legal advice it can probably contains grand jury material although i haven't seen it in like 13 14 years uh although a lot of other people apparently have seen it uh it would not normally be um disclosed uh, publicly and certainly not to the judge uh, over the case. Um, so he would not have gotten the memo in any event, but the, I think the issue for him was he didn't, he does he was not furnished all of the evidence that we gathered, which is not unusual for a guilty plea. Um, and uh, you know, that's kind of the way the case played out because of the decision making um, by the political appointees in the Department of Justice. So the did, so everybody understands you did get the six hundred million, and where where did that six hundred million go? How did it get used? Oh, uh, let me see. As I recall, a portion of it went to um, pay back. Um, government healthcare benefit programs like Medicaid, Medicare, um, Department of Labor programs, you know, the agency programs. Uh, part of it um, went as fines and uh, forfeitures for the criminal conduct of the company. Um, I think I'll probably, two, I think 270 million of it. And there was a part of it i think and i can't remember the exact number maybe it was 140 million that purdue we required purdue to set aside and to use to settle individual civil claims by individual victims you know at the, and i think at the time the amount that we had uh set aside seemed like it might be a significant amount obviously on hindsight it's not it doesn't come it doesn't come close to paying for the pain and suffering caused by the company, um, you know, but at the time that it seemed like um, a significant amount. Did any, did any money go to like Dr. Art Van Zee to, <clears throat> to help him what it, he was doing or Beth Davies? The it system? did not. I mean, I would have thought that these guys, the people who 
were in the street working would have been given some money, you know? Yeah, it, it, it did not. And uh, that might be, you know, well, a couple of things that might be one, uh, a hole in the system where in a, in a resolution like that, there's not really any kind of authority for uh, funds to go to private organizations um, not to say that maybe we couldn't have tried to uh, work that into the um, the settlement in some way or another. You know, we didn't think of it at the time. Uh, again, back in 2007, um, you know, ha had we known that Purdue would continue its illegal conduct uh, even after it got prosecuted once, and had we known the, the amount of devastation that they've wreaked uh, on our country after that point in time, certainly we would have thought differently about how to structure that settlement. Yeah, well, you couldn't have seen what was coming. It was, it was, you know, got progressively worse. So, <clears throat> I give you more quickie questions in the in the trial. Uh, the judge, he he allowed some of the parents to talk. They wanted. They got up and he allowed them what two minutes or something to say what they wanted to say. Correct. Um, <clears throat> so, so this was yeah. This was at sentencing. So there was no trial. They pled guilty. So then there was a sentencing. But, I think but in I probably saw, August. I saw the three lawyers there, but I didn't see the three executives there. Were the three? Executives yeah, they were there. They were there. The three executives were there, uh, and and they were. They were depicted in the uh, Hulu series as being there. Okay, I didn't. Uh, I saw these guys who I knew that were attorneys. At least I thought they were. They and were. they would have been there with their attorneys. But but Golden Goldenheim, uh, Friedman, and Udell were in the courtroom because they play, they pled guilty and they were being sentenced, and so they did have to face the parents. Uh, Judge Jones wanted you. Know, so even though legally they were not victims of the crime that uh, Purdue and the executives pled guilty to judge Jones felt that it was appropriate because of what they, the drug had done to people to allow those parents a, an amount of time to address the court and the defendants. And so that was a really good thing for him that, 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 that was uh, allowed to happen in that uh, sentencing. Well, the one lady that really impressed me was the one that walked up with the <clears throat> little vial and she said, this is my daughter, that my daughter's ashes are in this vial and it's all because of you. And, and again, yep. they, they seem to be uh, motionless or speechless. You know, they just like, they, they, almost, were, they had no sympathy or empathy for any of these parents, so it seemed like, you know. And I'm sure that's I, pretty close. I think, the way, I think the way it was depicted in the, you know, the miniseries, you know, the way a lot of things are depicted in the miniseries, including this, the foundational facts are, are correct. And maybe there are some nuances, some tweaks to uh, who said what and the specific wording. But the, the, the general feel and the general of what happened is, is true, um, as depicted in the miniseries. So my last question, so you did get the tapes sent to you without any return address. <laughs> For people that didn't know the tapes, we're talking about uh, training tapes that Purdue put together that somebody somehow you know, got out of the building. Somehow we got the, the, the training tapes. Um, I don't remember how. 
I don't know that it was a, a mysterious package left at the front desk or where it came from or all that or any of that. I, I can't remember that. Uh, there's a lot of things, you know, it's, so, at, at, you know, after 2007, when the sentencing was done, I buried the case and, uh, you know, basically went on to do other things until 2019 when I started getting calls about it. So there's a lot of things that I don't really remember how things transpired, and that's one of them. Okay. So the, again, the, now the personal question, what did your wife think of Peter Sarsgaard playing you? <laughs> oh, she, she thought he, he did okay. She thought she he did. did okay. She never invited him <laughs> over for dinner later after the movie was done? No, no. We now we had dinner with them. Uh, you know, I had dinner. There was a group of us uh, at the uh, screening in D.C. We had a dinner with, that Hulu put on prior to the screening. So, you know, we, I, I was there. He was there, and I got to meet him for the first time there. Uh, but, 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 you know, that that's that's basically it. <laughs> yeah, the screenwriter or anything didn't talk to you about your personality or anything like that. Oh, you yeah, know. I spent uh, I spent a number of hours with Danny Strong. He came out and interviewed me first in 2019 for three or four hours, and then we had subsequent conversations, many subsequent conversations by uh, by telephone. Uh, you know, after that point, up through even through the time that they were filming, uh, he he was very meticulous in wanting to make sure that things were accurately per portrayed. And that was my desire. That's why I, I talked to him is because I wanted it to be accurately portrayed and factually correct as well. Well, I know you. I don't know Peter Sarsgaard other than seeing him on TV. And I think that I think he did a good job. I really, do. I think so. Yeah, <laughs> he has your demeanor down quite well, you know. <laughs> so, so I think that's great. And <clears throat> our time is about up. So I want to want to thank you. Rick, uh, for really taking the time tonight. I know you got a busy schedule, and I'm hoping you retire soon so you have more time because you're just too busy and you need to retire because you got so many other things you want to do. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So. I, I, no, hey, Tony, I appreciate it. Thank you for asking me. And, uh, you know, if you, if you need anything else from me, let me know. And I am going to be fully retired come June. Well, I, I'm happy to hear that. But you won't be retired, trust me. You're going to find so many things to do that you always wanted to do because, you know, I was retired and what I do, I bought a radio station. So, you know, so you never know what the next corner is going to be. Exactly. Right. So this is uh, Tony LaGreca. This is The Courage to Hope. And you've been listening to Rick Moncastle, who has been our guest tonight, who was the uh, chief author of the first Purdue trial back in 2007 that did bring in $600 million. Chump change for them, but a good load of money. And the one thing I'm impressed about Rick is he spent six years on this one case working. And that, I'll tell you, it's a lot of effort and a lot of work. And I'm impressed that you never gave up, that you just kept on going and kept on going. And we need a lot more lawyers and a lot more attorney generals like you to just prosecute some of these kind of people. And I thank you very much. All right. Thank you. God bless you all.